DC SV to uh, USB. I know, but I don't know that. <clears throat> like, what's wrong with you? Professional podcast, Jesus. Make sure you're looking at that mic, woman. Okay. Okay, you ready? Professional podcast, Jesus Christ. <laughs> the fuck am I roped into? <laughs> Rookie fucking that's, mistake. That's probably the clip that will be. <laughs> <laughs> Goddamn joke. (laughs) What kind of bullshit? I'll be in my trailer. (laughs) These guys are rookies. Old men rolling dice. Everyone is welcome at our table. Nostalgia is what we do. Good afternoon. This is uh, Jason from Old Men Rolling Dice. I'm here today with my lovely co-host, DM Affy. Hello. And we are going to be interviewing for our episode of Geek on the Borderlands, Judge Brian. Hi, Judge Brian. Hello. Thanks for having me on. So let's get right into it. Judge Brian, give me the year. 1981. Very nice. My se- I'm the same year. Oh. Oh, you guys popped your dice cherry at the same year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, many of us did that year. Uh, so, where would you like me to start? At the beginning. Like okay. I- so, I'm gonna I'm gonna segue because I, I often do. But I think that uh, the path that a player takes on their journey through whatever role playing genre they have mimics the hero's journey that you would see in literary fiction which is a process that's well-defined. I brought props today. <laughs> but it, it does look like this. So essentially, in the beginning of the hero's journey, there's a call to adventure. And I think that where you end up as a gamer and what game really speaks to you has something to do with the primers that you were exposed to before you started gaming. Because my primers, actually, if I think back, it was inevitable that I would land on fantasy. I'm a science fiction reader. I love science fiction and I do game in science fiction worlds, but there's something about the fantasy setting that speaks to me on a more primal primal level, I think. So uh, like a lot of kids, um, we had fairy tales in the house and fairy tales introduced children to worlds where magic is real. And my mom had a lot of books from when she was a kid and I read those. So there was one massive one of Aesop's fables. There was one of the classic fairy tales that included Peter Pan and uh, all of those stories. And I had this one book and I can still remember the title. It was, there was this um, series of books and it was about a rabbit with wings and his name was Pookie. And there was one (laughs) called Pookie in Search of a Home. And the cover showed uh, this tiny little winged rabbit that was like some fae, and he was standing in front of this mushroom house with a little door on it, and that was burned into my brain. When I was really little, this was my favorite book, and I used to read it over and over and over again. So just the image of a home made out of a mushroom stock with a door in it, I think made me very accepting of The Hobbit, 
when I saw it later because they lived in holes in the ground, but my, not my, dirt, wet, nasty holes. My entry to fantasy as well was The Hobbit. So we actually talked about it in my interview. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of people will go back to books too because I think yeah. even after when you started reading, I remember for me a huge iconic part for me was the Choose Your Own Adventure style books. Oh, yes. Like I.R. Like Stein Goosebumps and stuff for sure. And um, like Lone Wolf and yep. Warlock of Firetop Mountain, fighting fantasy books were huge i mean it, almost like it was a bridge like it's that it's that stepping stone in between sort of role playing mm. and, and novels. And, and so we can talk about that actually this is a would be a topic for a future podcast because <laughs> i think that this is interesting so ha, have any of you uh watched the documentary that's on amazon called eye of the beholder yes. it's about D art yeah. Okay, there's one really interesting thing that he says that relates to what you just said and the the guy that they're interviewing and I think it's Diesel, but he said that uh the influence of D&D is so widespread that if you google an image of a fantasy thing, it's almost impossible to find one that isn't D&D related. That's how you know the giant in the playground yeah. but the thing is is that it's created its own mythology now and it's almost become dogmatic because you can't deviate from that you go into any indigo and look at the shelves of fantasy books they all look exactly the same nobody's doing that clark ashton smith robert e howard weird fantasy anymore because you know there are lines and everybody's being good writers and good readers and nobody's going outside of the lines and i think that something has been lost in creativity with fantasy i agree with this i find that they've set the standard for what an elf a dwarf a halfling is Absolutely. what a, yes, what a yes, dragon yes. is what a, what a what a troll is what a giant is has yeah. has literally they've literally laid out a blueprint that said this is what it is and we control a massive share of the market and yeah. we have a massive amount of influence. So when you read something in some of the older novels and they're like, um, I'm trying to think there was something in Shinar I read. And I think maybe it was the way the dwarves were depicted. It was quite different. And I was like, well, that's that's different because it's sort of outside of that regular circle. Mm-hmm. And if you read uh, fiction like Paul Anderson, uh, The Broken Sword, his elves are like the elves that are in DCC. They're not humans with pointed ears. They're aliens. They mm-hmm. have very different motivations. They have very different uh, beliefs and how they, their worldview is just completely different. And a lot of these things are so locked down that even the movies, the Lord of the Rings movies have been affected by this because do you know that not once in any of the books did J.R.R. Tolkien say that they had pointed ears? Not once. Shit, I didn't know that. <laughs> That is something that has been brought in from something else because we have this archetype in our heads about what What enough looks looks like, like. but where did that come from? Well, there's a lot of evidence that it came from D&D because you can't find examples of these things. And even you can have a conversation with somebody where you show them a picture of a giant lizard, call it a dragon, and somebody will say, "Uh, excuse me, but dragons have wings, depending on the system. But there are fantasy books that predate D&D where dragons don't have wings, but they're still called dragons. You know, Conan would encounter things, a thunder lizard or whatever. But how does this relate to what you just said? Those books came out after the role-playing games. So they're riffing on themselves. They're not adding anything new. They're reinforcing the tropes within the genre in those books. 
I was talking about Appendix N literature uh, to one of the players in my game, and I she asked what it was, so I happily tell her because uh, I nerd out on these things. And she said, oh, stories like Dritzt. And I'm like, no, Dritzt is the product of the game that came from Appendix N. It's almost like the chicken and egg. Yeah. I think it's neat, too, because it goes back to what you talked about earlier, where you said you know a lot of people who play sci-fi mm-hmm. and fantasy. And the reality is Appendix N is full of sci-fi. There were no lines then. Fantasy and science fiction were kind of opposing sides of the same card. You used to get little bits of that, though. When you think of things like uh, Expedition to Barrier Peaks and stuff, like some of the early modules. The early ones. Yeah. yeah. They would I'd have like a science present, fiction. I'd like to present Thirsty Star Lesbians, actually which is one we're actually doing for fundraising. Uh, But they have very much that sort of science fiction and fantasy blended where they give you like post-apocalypse, but they're sword fighting. There's, you know, space travel, but you're pirates. Like it's blending these, these two, I would say converse drama genres together and you know, making it work. I I think it's awesome. On a side note, post-apocalyptic is one of my favorites. And Um, And it goes back to what you talked about. I grew up Thundar the Barbarian. Yeah. As a cartoon, massive influence. Like literally my favorite thing that dropped on Saturday morning. So after Pookie, In Search of a Home, um, I was introduced to the Chronicles of Narnia. It was broadcast oh, on, on television. Everybody yeah. saw the British cartoon. The and that had a lot of stuff that the children's fairy tales that I had read, uh, you know, the talking animals, the satyr called a fawn, mm-hmm. but that th- these are all priming you for things to come in the future. Um, after I watched that and I missed the first little bit, and had to catch on a rerun, but I got the books from the library and I basically read them sequentially. So this was like my first incidence of binging something, which is super common now. I mean, if you get introduced to a Netflix show that you like, what do you do? You watch them all. Shortly after that, so this is like around when I was in grade seven, uh, I, I took a bus, a babysitter was looking after us and they lived out in the country. We took a bus and the kid that I was sitting beside had a copy of Conan, the barbarian, the Marvel comic issue one. And I was like, what is this? Because it was kind of like all of the fantasy stuff, but for, uh, 11, 12 year old boy, it was like everything that you wanted to be when you grow up. Like, I want to look like that and cut people's heads off with a sword. (laughs) Um, Not so much now in my 50s. There are laws against that and really people don't annoy (laughs) me as much as... But 50 years ago, it was totally fine. But it it was another primer, right? And then uh, my dad decided that Heavy Metal magazine was something that is wholesome and nurturing for... Young men. What? So he would buy heavy metal magazines. So the first issue that my dad gave me was the December 1979 issue. I was not old enough to be reading heavy metal. I wasn't 13 years old. I was 12. And this had like explicit sex and violence on some of the pages. But if you're talking about somebody who had been primed over their lifetime for fantasy literature, and and this was just like 
everything that I wanted to read. I, I was having <laughs> eyegasms on every page. And it wasn't just the, the, the explicit sex, because, I mean, that's titillating for a 12-year-old boy, but it was the art, like uh, it was Richard Corbin's Den and all of this Mobius? stuff that Mobius oh. was doing it. I mean, all of these people. This went on for years. He would buy it every month, and after he read it, it became mine, and I still have a I, stack. I was thinking, I had this mental image of him just being like, yeah, okay, this looks fine, and then handing it to you. But he read it, and he knew what was oh, in it. Oh, he absolutely knew what oh, was in it. And here's the funny thing is when I was in grade eight, I was I, I think I took it to school because I wasn't oh, no. finished reading it. And the grade seven teacher got it, and he's like, I'm taking this. I'm calling your parents. I'm like. Good luck with that. <laughs> so, Where do you think I got it from, yeah, bitch? Yeah, yeah. I got it from my dad, and he came back, handed it to me, and he's like, leave it at home. The next one would be Epic Magazine, which was Marvel's attempt to come out with a heavy metal magazine of their own. Had less explicit sex. Oh, well, then we don't want it. But they did an article. This was in the fall 1980 issue. It was called The Gamesman of Earth Prime. And they actually talked about this new game called D&D that was starting to get really popular. And they were talking about TSR and SPI. SPI was a competitor to TSR back in the day. They had games. Uh, they did a lot of boxed war games. And TSR ended up gobbling them up. And I can remember reading that. And I'm like, there's something to this. So not long after that, I um, read a comic book. It was a DC title called The Warlord. And this was, every uh, issue was basically a D&D &D adventure, start to finish. Like we're going into the, we're kicking the door down, we're going in, we're <laughs> looting it, and there's going to be traps and stuff. And the one issue that I have basically reads exactly like uh, the Fritz Leiber story, The Howling Tower, if you remember that one. Uh, it was the tower itself that was the thing that they had to fight against to get out alive. Uh, he had a companion because, you know, there's always a, a party. Um, and I became obsessed with the Warlord magazine. And at that time, TSR was doing one page ads that were like cartoons where they had a party, they had an elf, they had a fighter, and they referred to each other like uh, elf, go check the door, whatever. Um, there was one where the, the magic user uh, hit a gelatinous cube with a magic missile. Uh, anyway, I was reading this and I'm like, uh, you know, my head exploded because all of the things up to that point had been acting as primers for me to be very receptive to this. And when that moment came, I had some money. I had saw the full page ad. It was actually in Warlord issue number 67. Was And I don't know if it was because I went spelunking through my comics in preparation <laughs> for this. And I think that it was an earlier issue that was the actual one, but I found the specific ad. It was for the BX versions of the game, which was the one that I bought. I bought the basic box set. I went to uh, my local mall, which was the Linden Park Mall. There were two stores in there that sold D&D stuff. One was Leisure World and the other was Playtime Toys. <laughs> I went into Leisure World because I was too old and cool to go into the toy store. And they had a kiosk, well, like a, a section of the store, maybe as long as this table. So six-ish feet, three tiers high. They had the hardback books, and they had adventures, and then they had other things. They had some minis. They sold the TSR dice. 
dice were hard to get back in the day. Now you can walk out. If I walk outside, I might trip over one because you can buy them <laughs> anywhere. But uh, I bought the basic box set. I took it home, tried to muddle my way through it. And I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> I had, you know, my brother, a couple other friends over. You're going to do this. And so we tried to muddle our way through it. And I mean, we had fun, but it wasn't playing by the rules. And um, I set it aside. And then later that fall at Paris High, there was a Dungeons and Dragons club. And my friend Richard Park invited me to play because we were just talking about stuff. And I said, well, I have this game and I'd really like to learn how to play. And he says, oh, we play every day here. Um, you should come out. And I was like, what? <laughs> it's it's like uh, if you're in a foreign country and, and you're talking to somebody and you find out, oh, you're Canadian too. <laughs> like, that's weird. Um, so he invited me out and I was very excited. I hadn't been gaming for a little bit. I had been running one shots at the Brantford Gamers Guild and I was looking for something new to play. So I'd been running BX back then and I hadn't been playing with my Pathfinder group. And I was on Reddit and I was talking to people about different games because I wanted something with a smaller footprint. And uh, somebody recommended this newer game called Dungeon Crawl Classics. It was based on the BX engine. It had a lot of cool stuff that made the magic system chaotic. And it had a lot of uh, tables. So you didn't, you could push a lot of stuff off to the tables, which I thought was an interesting way to do it. So I looked at it and I thought this might be the game for me. It had a lot of things that I really liked, especially Chaos Magic, because I had read a lot of Michael Moorcock, the Elric, you know, he, you're playing with fire. Uh, magic should be weird and it shouldn't be predictive like, I'm a wizard and I'm going to cast this and this will happen. Well, not in DCC. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. I, I really liked it. It was fun to play. It was fun to run. And it made me feel like I was that. 13 year old sitting around a table with my friends again. And you know, the last line in stand by me is you'll never have friends like you had when you were eight years old. No. You, can, you can never go back. Right and that is not true because you can recapture that, that feeling at times and you just got to sit back and, you know, take a breath and soak it in. But DCC allowed me to refeel those feelings that I felt the first few times I played D and D at a table with my friends in a way that I never thought I could go back to. I think we're going to wrap it there. Let's say thank you so much, Brian. Oh, yeah, thanks for thanks having Brian. me. It was fun. So if you get a chance, make sure you give this a listen to. It's an Old Men Rolling Dice podcast. Um, I'm Jason, here with my lovely co-host. Hi, Muffy. And uh, until next time. Bye. Briark. Good night, Dick. Good night, Dick. <laughs>